Paris, the last days of July, 1830. Julius, Prince of Polignac, first minister to King Charles X, last of the restored Bourbons, is planning a grand banquet to celebrate the publication of the government's new anti-democratic regulations, which are called the Ordinances of Saint-Cloud. He has decided that the time has come to put an end to the liberal pretensions of the newly elected Chamber of Deputies. France must be made to see that it is still a monarchy and that the Bourbons still rule. Read me the first ordinance. It is hereby decreed that the Chambre de Députés chosen in the recent election will not be allowed to meet, and it is hereby dissolved on the King's authority. Correct. Read on. A moment, though. Send in Monsieur Soyer, the chef de cuisine. New elections based on a reduced electorate will be held and... All right, all right. Next. The franchise will be confined to 25,000 people. Ah, Monsieur Soyer. Monsieur Soyer, I have heard that Monsieur le Vicomte de Martignac's supper party of last Friday was a very elegant affair. And the Monsieur le Comte de Villers' dinner for His Majesty on the previous evening was a tremendous success. So it seems we will have to show them something, eh, Soyer? Indeed, Your Excellency. Uh, might I suggest au chaud du porc à la Périgourdine, a fine piece of pork studded with truffles, or maybe a roti de contrefilet du bœuf? Ah, the pork, definitely the pork with truffles. And perhaps a fresh Loire salmon à la soyer. Of course, of course. You mean dressed with crayfish from Brittany. Wonderful. And naturally we will have Madame's favourite, a sauce vert, to go with it. I dig it that the baskets of apricots have been sent up from the estate. Uh, they have arrived, Your Excellency. I shall, of course, prepare them au four. Soyez, I can see by the smile on your face that you are going to surprise us. It was also my intention, Your Excellency, to create a souffle au chocolat à la Bourbon. Ah, a very contemporary dish, Soyez, for a very political occasion. Thank you, Monsieur Soyez. I look forward in pleasurable anticipation to tomorrow evening. Now, where were we? Uh, there is one further ordinance, Your Excellency. It is the one about the banning of publications. How does it read? Um, the government has decreed under pain of immediate imprisonment that all who desire to publish matter of any description whatsoever shall require previous sanction from the Department of the Interior before it is printed and distributed. Good. That should silence the interminable chattering of these self-styled Democrats. And these notices are being posted all over Paris by direction of the minister? Yes, Your Excellency. Uh, Your Excellency, there was a feeling that there might be trouble in some parts of the city. Trouble? Nonsense. You don't know your lily-livered liberals. They won't budge. What is going on out there? My God, a crowd has broken into the courtyard. They're making for the kitchens. They've hauled out Swire and the other cooks. What is he saying to them? Friends, we are workers like you. We respect your flag of the three colours. The flag of 89. The flag of our glorious revolution. Hear me. Hear me. I know the fort in la patrie. Le jour de gloire est arrivé. Contre nous dans la Let's go, 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 let's go
carrying him shoulder high. He's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary. That clever ruse, which temporarily turned Alexis Soyer into a revolutionary, probably saved his life. But it left him jobless, and after several months, he sailed for England to join his brother Philippe, who was chef to the Royal Duke of Cambridge. He was then just 22 years of age. A Frenchman by birth, Troyes lived most of his life in England. He wrote poems and cookery books and a ballet and innumerable letters to the Times. He invented, among hundreds of other things, sauces, drinks, patent pots and pans and kettles and teapots, an appliance for rescuing the drowning, entree dishes, pantomime illusions, naval kitchens, a device for keeping money in the heels of dress boots, and a stove which was used in the British Army for over 80 years. He created a dish costing a hundred guineas and a soup kitchen which produced good soup at three farthings a quart. He organised great banquets for visiting celebrities and a dinner one Christmas day for 20,000 of the poorest of London's poor. He cooked recherche dinners worthy of Lucullus and destroyed his health in the Crimea, turning army rations of salt pork into palatable food. Some 25 miles northeast of Paris is the small town of Mont-en-Brie, home of the delicious cheese and also of a famous mustard. And here on October the 14th, 1809, Alexis Benedict Soyer, the third and youngest son of a small shopkeeper, was born. His ambitious mother was determined to make him a priest. Alexis showed early in life a love of music and soon developed a fine voice. At nine years of age, he was sent to the cathedral school at Meaux, founded by the great preacher Bossuet some hundred years before, and now run by Alexis' uncle. He loved the music but hated the discipline, and after repeated requests to his mother had failed, he decided to get himself expelled. Various slight misdemeanours were overlooked, but eventually he succeeded. He persuaded some friends to help him ring the great bell of the church at midnight, the local fire alarm. The whole town was aroused, the garrison turned out, and Alexis was expelled from school. Perhaps it was this early success that made him all his life a devoted practical joker. He was now 12. His elder brother Philippe was a cook in Paris, and his brother Louis a cabinet maker, but neither occupation appealed to Alexis. He went to stay with Philippe while he looked for work, and after trying various jobs for a week or two at a time, he became apprenticed almost by accident to his brother's trade of chef. For four years, Alexis worked at Chez Grignon in the Rue Vivienne. At Grignon's, it was considered infinitely more important to satisfy a real gourmet than to make a profit. This was the spirit in which Alexis received his early training and which always inspired him. When only 16, he was engaged as second cook by the well-known restaurateur and caterer Douy of the Boulevard des Italiens, and already at 17, he was head chef with 12 cooks under him. He had truly found his métier. Alexis Soyer spent the first five years of his life in England as chef to various great houses. That his style was already making him noticed we can see from Thackeray's novel Pendennis. Thackeray writes, 
On another day, the mail deposited at the gate a foreign gentleman adorned with many ringlets and chains. He made a great riot at the lodge gate to the keeper's wife because there was no carriage in waiting to drive him to the house a mile off and because he could not walk entire leagues in his fatigued state and varnished boots. This was Monsieur Alcide Mirobelon, formerly chef of His Highness the Duke of Borodino, of His Eminence Cardinal Bacafico, and at present chef of the bouche of Sir Claverling, Baronet. Monsieur Mirobelon's library, pictures and piano had arrived previously in charge of the intelligent young Englishman, his aide-de-camp. He was, moreover, aided by a professed female cook, likewise from London, who had inferior females under her orders. He did not dine in the steward's room, but took his nutriment in solitude in his own apartments, where a female servant was affected to his private use. It was a grand sight to behold him in his dressing gown composing a menu. He always sat down and played the piano for some time before that. If interrupted, he remonstrated pathetically with his little maid. Every great artist, he said, had need of solitude to perfectionate his works. In 1836, Alexis Soyer was invited to take charge of the kitchens of the Reform Club, and it was here that he made his indelible mark in culinary history. A first major success for him was the entertainment he provided on the occasion of the coronation of Queen Victoria on June the 28th, 1838. The founder of the Reform Club, the Right Honourable Edward Ellis MP, is talking to the chairman of the club committee, Lord Marcus Hill. My dear Hill, I really must congratulate you on the perfectly splendid show the club put on for Her Majesty's coronation. Have you seen the Morning Chronicle? Listen to this. The club building, the occupiers of which had excelled almost every other club in the display of ladies on the balconies during the morning, was not less distinguished by its illuminations at night. <laughs> the gaslight illuminations were Soyer's idea. It was he who suggested that we spell out Victoria along the front of the club buildings in huge jets of gas. The crown, the VR monogram, and the wreath around it were his idea too. Extraordinary fellow. He has this incredible gift for the occasion. By the way, was it he who hired that Austrian band with that conductor, what's his name? to play at the Dejeuner à la Fourchette in the open air. It was indeed. Herr Strauss created quite a stir. Interesting music, don't you think? Hasn't quite shed the vulgarity of its origins as yet, of course. If you ask me, old boy, this waltz thing will go the way of all these foreign fads. But the food, Hill, the food, it was divinely elegant. The club is so fortunate to have hit on him to take charge of the kitchen. And when the new club buildings are ready and he takes over his own kitchens, I have a feeling he will put the Reform Club on the gastronomical map with a vengeance. His name will be a household word when that fellow Strauss is forgotten. Mark my words, Ellis.
The ultra-modern kitchens of the new reform club, designed by Soyer and opened in March 1841, were the talk of London. Their sophisticated use of gas and steam and their cleanliness were what struck the constant stream of sightseers who came to see the great chef. Very distinguished visitors were shown around by Soyer himself, dressed in a shining white apron, a red velvet cap over one ear, and waving a long spoon like a pointer. He enjoyed nothing better than explaining to noble lords and elegant ladies the composition of a soup or the flavouring of a sauce, and would tempt his visitors with a spoonful of delicious mulligatawny or a mouthful of pâté de volaille aux truffes, sending them away ravenous. The fame of the chef and his kitchens soon spread outside England, as a contemporary description by a French writer, the Vicomtesse de Malville, shows. This fine apartment is the kitchen, spacious as a ballroom, kept in the finest order and white as a young bride. All powerful steam, the noise of which salutes your ear as you enter, here performs a variety of offices. It diffuses a uniform heat to a large row of dishes, warms the metal plates, upon which are disposed the dishes that have been called for and that are waiting to be sent above. It turns the spits, draws the water, carries up the coal, and moves the plate like an intelligent and indefatigable servant. Around you, water boils, the stew pans bubble, and a little further on is a movable furnace, before which pieces of meat are converted into savoury roti. Here are sauces and gravies, stews, broths, soups, etc. In the distance are Dutch ovens, marble mortars, lighted stoves, iced plates of metal for fish, and various compartments for vegetables, fruits, roots and spices. The man who devised the plan of this magnificent kitchen, over which he governs without question or dispute, the artist who directs by his gestures his subalterns stricked out in white, and whose eye takes in at a glance the most difficult combinations in the culinary art, in a word, the chef by whom every gourmet admitted within the precincts of the Reform Club swears is Monsieur Soyer, of whom it may justly be said that he is not more distinguished as a professor of the science of Vatel and Carême than as a well-behaved and modest man. Allow him, therefore, to give you the history of his discoveries and improvements. Let him conduct you into the smallest recesses of his establishment, the cleanliness of which would shame many a drawing-room. And listen to him also, as he informs you that those precious paintings which crowd his own parlour are from the brush of a wife who has been recently taken from him by a premature death. Of this you may almost doubt till he again affirms it, for judging from the poetry of the composition and the vigour of the colouring and the design, you might swear that these pictures were the work of a Murillo when he was young. Let all strangers who come to London for business or for whatever cause, not fail to visit the Reform Club. In an age of utilitarianism and of the search for the comfortable, like ours, there is more to be learned here than in the ruins of the Colosseum or the Parthenon or of Memphis. Although a man who delighted in the great occasion, Soyer was equally, if not more at home, with the elegance of the intimate dinner party. What he himself described as the most recherché dinner he ever dressed was given at the club for a party of ten members on the evening of May the 9th, 1846. One of the guests at this Lucullen feast may well have been Soyer's friend, Lord Marcus Hill, with whom he tells us the following discussion on gastronomy took place. 
Soyez dates it five days after the famous dinner. You are perfectly right, my lord. The title of gourmet belongs only to the man who eats with art, with discernment, with a sense of order, and indeed with a great deal of order. The glutton is never a gourmet. The one eats and savours nothing. The other savours as he eats. The proud and haughty man, my lord, attends to his dinner out of pure necessity. The man of the world, thorough epicure that he is, makes of it his pleasure. Certainly one cannot give too much attention to the meticulous preparation and the intelligent ordering of a dinner. Dinner being part of every day, every season, every age. It is not alone our only inherited fashion, but the very soul of our social intercourse as well. Consider the course of history, and you will see that in all ages and among all nations, whatever good was accomplished, and betimes whatever evil too, was invariably preceded or followed by an ample dinner. Our hundred experts in the art of degustation need constant study and are ever calling for continual change. The greatest wit would find his eloquence run dry were he to neglect excessively the due ordering of his meals. Which goes to prove, my lord, that the most agreeable of our sensations are dependent not only on nature, but also on the care which we devote to our person. Yes, indeed. For the more sensitive the soul, the more fruitful the act of degustation. The gustatory sensations work as actively on the palate as the charm of melody upon the ear. To take an example, in the case of madness, a man may well experience the need to eat, but the magic effect of degustation is as much beyond him as the power of reason. Your argument on this point is extraordinarily apt, my lord. Do you not also share my opinion that nothing better disposes the human mind to transactions of a friendly nature than a dinner well thought out and artistically prepared. It is this very consideration that makes me always say that a good cook is as useful as a wise counsellor. I have always noticed, my lord, that the most discerning palate may be the most difficult to please, but it is also the most equitable in its compensation. The choice of wines is of great importance in the due ordering of a dinner. A delicate, light and generous wine is the protector of the cook, and becomes the benefactor of the company. Permit me, my lord, to draw your attention to the fact that a gastronomical reunion devoid of ladies is, in my eyes, a flowerbed without flowers, an ocean without its waves, a fleet without sails. Undoubtedly, such gatherings are the cradle of good manners and good cheer, just as debauch is the graveyard of morals. Eighteen forty six, year of feasts and banquets at the Reform Club, was also a year of hunger all over Europe. In Ireland, the potato crop failed once more, and Alexis Soyer took up his pen to write to the London Times. February the tenth, eighteen forty seven. Sir, amongst all terrestrial afflictions which occasionally oppress humanity, famine is the most redoubtable. It is to be deeply regretted that at the present time this evil goddess of terror rides victoriously through the greater part of Europe. Though the starvation is continental, need I say that Ireland and Scotland are the greatest sufferers of that awful calamity. Seeing daily in the public press the charitable efforts of thousands of good people 
and the incessant distribution of food, but still the distress on the increase, instead of coming to a close, has induced me to visit several charitable institutions and to taste the soup which is given, with the very best of intention, to the poor, but which, I must observe, does not answer the purpose it is intended for, I having found the greatest number of makers of this soup entirely ignorant of the advantages resulting from the numerous ingredients of which they may be composed, and instead of producing a wholesome and nutritious aliment, has often the contrary effect, particularly to a stomach in a state of starvation. In some of the soups I have tasted, I have mostly found a great want of proper seasoning, which not only flatters the palate, but when added restores and strengthens the digestive organs. I also found that the rice, split peas, barley, and any substance of that nature were generally underdone, and often the whole contents tasted as if burned, and that for want of proper vessels and practical knowledge of cooking. I am happy to inform you, Mr. Editor, that I have contrived the plan of a kitchen for the making and distribution of soup. Sir, I much regret the delay that has taken place since the publication of my former letter, which has unavoidably occurred, the time being consumed in experiments which I have made with various kinds of farinaceous ingredients, produced and imported into this country. And likewise, with some of the immense varieties of vegetable, cultivated with so much success in this favoured soil, but which, generally speaking, are not sufficiently appreciated or used to the greatest advantage by the industrious classes. Several hundreds of letters I have already received upon the subject have induced me to give immediate publicity to the two following receipts, which I consider quite correct. I now give you the result of my first economical study to produce a cheap and wholesome soup. Quarter of a pound of leg of beef, at fourpence per pound, one penny. Two ounces of dripping fat, at fourpence per pound, one halfpenny. Two onions and other vegetables, one penny. Half a pound of flour, seconds, at a penny halfpenny per pound, three farthings. Half a pound of pearl barley, at threepence per pound, one penny halfpenny. Three ounces of salt with half an ounce of brown sugar, one farthing. Two gallons of water, total five pence. I first put one ounce of dripping into a saucepan, capable of holding two gallons of water, with a quarter of a pound of leg of beef without bones, cut into square pieces about half an inch, and two middling-sized... We learn that the government have resolved forthwith to dispatch Monsieur Soyer, chef de cuisine of the Reform Club, to Ireland with ample instructions to provide his soups for the starving millions of Irish people. The soup has been served through several of the best judges of the noble art of gastronomy at the Reform Club, not as a soup for the poor, but as a soup furnished for the day in the cart. The members who partook of it declared it excellent. Among these may be mentioned Lord Titchfield and Mr O'Connell. Monsieur Soyer can supply the whole poor of Ireland at one meal for each person once a day. He has informed the executive that a bellyful of his soup once a day, together with a biscuit, will be more than sufficient to sustain the strength of a strong and healthy man. The London Times, February the 22nd, 1847. Sir, 
While I am ready to give the great artist credit for his good intention in publishing his plan for manufacturing soup for the poor, I cannot allow it to go forth to the world uncontradicted that one quarter of a pound only of meat to two gallons of water with the small proportion of other ingredients specified, even supposing time and fuel were allowed to reduce it, is sufficient to produce anything like a nutritious food for the craving and hungry poor. If the members of the Reform Club or the public intend to carry out this plan of Christian benevolence, let it be done with the liberal spirit of Englishmen by giving the destitute poor something which will afford strength, warmth and comfort, and not such an innutritious compound as will only tend to weaken and destroy the Constitution. In conclusion, I beg to observe that my great fear is that an article recommended by such an authority as Monsieur Soyer should be considered by the nobility and public as the standard receipt for soups for charitable purposes and thereby a serious injury be inflicted on the recipients of their bounty. I am, sir, your obedient servant, R. J. P. Jacquet, Johnson's Alamod, Brief Host, therefore... The London Times, 22nd of February, 1847. Sir, it is a great injury to the poor to misrepresent the price of necessities, which is too frequently done by those who try to curry favour with the rich. I know nothing of Monsieur Soyer, but beg to state, as a housekeeper with a family of nine persons, that I find with ready-money prices in this neighbourhood, two and a half miles west of London, the following to be a correct estimate for eight quarts of soup, taking Monsieur Soyer's receipt number one. I am, sir, yours respectfully, no cook. The London Times, the 25th of February, 1847. Sir... The continual demand for soup, with and without a ticket, has prevented my giving an answer to some stomachable letters to which your valuable journal gave publicity on the 22nd instant. Number one is, I perceive, a brother artist, and a far-famed one, who has been, as he honestly confesses, a la mode for the last 24 years. He objects to one quarter pound of meat. I beg to inform him that I have made two gallons of excellent soup without any meat, and that I have now three on taste, two with meat and one without, which I defy his scientific palate of beef a la mode antique to tell which is which. The meat I consider of no more value than the other ingredients, but to give a flavour by properly blending the gelatine and the osmosome, for in compounding the richest soups the balance of it is the great art. I can myself, with two pounds of meat and two gallons of water and the same ingredients, make a most insipid, detestable and innutritious soup by not preparing it secundum artem. A great part of the population of Scotland, Ireland and Wales have for centuries past principally fed on farinaceous food. I am not at all aware that bread or potatoes contain any animal substance, and if either had been plentiful, Famine would not now have existed. The poor do not want fattening, they want feeding. I would not for some time to come give solid meat to those stomachs that have been on the brink of starvation. Number two, I perceive, signs no cook. I beg to inform her that I take improvers, 
and give lessons in cookery and domestic economy. My charge is rather high, but as this is a philanthropic question, I should with pleasure give a week's instruction gratis on both those subjects. I would show her where we buy the stock meat for the club at threepence halfpenny per pound from a first-rate butcher, but to make it even money I charged mine fourpence. Or perhaps the said housekeeper has reckoned after the old system in use by them, one pound of meat at fourpence, sixpence, and so on. As regards living on the soup for three weeks, I beg to inform the writer that for the last three weeks I have made so many soups, and continually tasting of each, that I have actually fed on it, barring the biscuit. And I assure you, sir, that the nobility and gentry now daily visiting me say that I look as well as ever, and I feel satisfied that anybody using alternately my seven receipts and a savoury biscuit will be able to work and look as well as I do. I am, sir, with great respect, your obedient servant, Alexis Soyer. Sir, allow me to make a few observations on two letters that appeared in the Times of the 22nd instant, as they seem to me a little unfair to Monsieur Soyer, who is kindly giving the uninitiated the benefit of his experience and knowledge, and thus may enable many people with small incomes to give nourishing food to their poor neighbours at a very trifling expense. Mr. Jacquet satirises Monsieur Soyer's charity and food under the title of Poor Soup, not considering that when famine and starvation prevail throughout a nation, liberal John Bull charity becomes impossible. He also forgets that the Irish and Scotch peasants habitually live on meal and vegetables. In fact, Monsieur Soyer's number one soup is very like that which in my early days formed the usual supper in an Irish farmer's kitchen. The London Times, March the 3rd, 1847. Sir, will you allow me as a physician at present practising the art of making soup for the poor on a large scale to say a few words to Monsieur Soyer and the non-medical world on the physiological question of diet now agitating? I do not wish to detract one little bit from Monsieur Soyer's high artistic reputation. Whoever has the privilege of conversing with that gentleman will readily admit that the spirit of Vatel has still a representative on earth. But he surely will forgive me if I doubt his information relative to the theory and practice of treating starvation. The Reform Club is not exactly the best school for the study of that subject. It may smack of ingratitude, but one must not be nice in such extremities if I declare that to Monsieur Soyer and his disciples, we men of physic owe half of our means of existence. I call dyspepsia and gout household gods to witness. Who doubts that Monsieur Soyer can play the palate off against the stomach? that he can cheat the practised senses of even a brother artist into the belief that he swallows meat when he swallows none. But I ask you, as a man of the world, whether it is just and to reason that Monsieur Soyer should be let loose upon Ireland to try a grand experiment, which, if wrong, is fatal and irrevocably so, when, by a consultation with men of science, you can a priori positively determine what is the food a labouring man requires. 
This is not the moment for the artist to make excellent ragout of old shoe thongs and a leek. Monsieur Scroyer is not the man for Galway. Your obedient servant, Le Boeuf. But man for Galway or not, the chef of the Reform Club sought and was granted leave of absence and set out for Ireland. He arrived in early March and immediately set to work to construct his new model soup kitchen, which was ready in a few weeks. The London Times of April the 7th carried this dispatch from its correspondent, datelined Dublin, April the 5th. On the whole, I have no hesitation in pronouncing Monsieur Soyer's new soup kitchen to be the best contrivance I have yet seen in this city for the distribution of soup. I should not forget to add that having been permitted to taste the soup, I found it to be very good. So much so that if it but proved to be as nutritious as it is palatable, I think the Irish poor will have every reason to rejoice at the arrival of Monsieur Soyer in this country. This latter point, however, as yet remains undecided. But the proof of the pudding, or indeed the soup, is in the eating. Here are the views of an Irish family who cooked the soup for us according to the master's recipe. Well, I thought the ingredients were perfectly usual, but I was surprised by the quantities of salt and sugar, which seemed excessive, but they cancelled each other out in the cooking. All the ingredients, I think, are readily available nowadays. In the first shop I tried didn't have pearl barley, but that, that was their sort of, you know, negligence, because it's usually everywhere. But I started with the ingredients for recipe number one and divided them. I made both, in fact. Uh, recipe number one is the same as recipe number two, except it's thickened with wheat flour, and recipe number two is thickened with maize flour, Indian meal, which has uh, turned out to be slightly less glutinous than the wheat flour and was more to my personal taste. But I was a bit alarmed at the vast quantities of water that were to be added to what seemed to be meagre ingredients. But that worked out surprisingly well, in fact, just as he said it would. It was quite thick and, um, you know, very pleasant, really. Although a bit bland in flavour. And it just worked absolutely, as he said. It was just perfectly ready in three hours. I, I tasted them, of course, continually during the cooking time, and they seemed appallingly salty at times and sweet at times because of the large amounts of those ingredients. But later on, towards the end, when the grains had swelled, and the flour had thickened, you know, this sort of uh, neutralised. I would uh, consider the two soups uh, nourishing. Uh, they were certainly satisfying, although a little bland uh, to the modern uh, taste. And because you had the chunks of vegetable and meat in it, they would give the impression of being very filling by modern uh, tastes. And I think there'd be basically the reaction, apart from the blandness, would be possibly to feel there's a little too much food in it. But that is, of course, re regarding a, a soup as a first course, which is rather mm -hmm. severe and stimulating rather than filling. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly um, it does, you know, on, on a, for, for a substantial helping or two substantial uh, helpings, as I had the second soup, give the impression of being filling and also the impression of consuming food. Yes, the soup is lovely. I really loved it. It's very tasty. I wish there's more of it. It doesn't like any soup for you. I thought it was quite nice. The taste was very nice. During his brief stay in Ireland, Soyer managed also to publish a booklet on cookery for the poor. It appeared over the imprint of Hodges and Smith of Grafton Street and carried on its title page a typical Soyer aphorism. 
Economy with the affluent in times of distress is a crime, while doing good with little means is a virtue. On an inside page towards the front we are told, this little brochure, having been published for the benefit of the poor and working classes, one penny out of every book sold will be given to the poor. The charitable cookery, or the poor man's regenerator, contained 54 pages and sold for sixpence. Soyer's Irish visit, though brief, was an unqualified success. The London Times of May the 14th carried this report from its Dublin correspondent. The government, having purchased this extraordinary kitchen, now in Dublin, for the South Union in that city, it is to be removed at once from its present site, the Royal Barracks Esplanade, to that most densely populated district, the Liberty of Dublin, the latter spot being more commodious and better adapted for the benevolent purpose in view. The good that has already been done is scarcely to be estimated, but some notion of the extent of usefulness may be gathered from the following extract of a letter from the resident manager to Monsieur Soyer. May the 8th, 1847. As you are no doubt anxious to know how the kitchen progresses, I have gone into the calculation of which the following is the result. We have on Monday and Tuesday cooked porridge and stirabout of rice and Indian meal for 31,270 persons, using 4,864 pounds of meal and 5,034 pounds of rice. The time is January 1855. In the Crimea, the British Army is encamped before Sebastopol on a bare plateau without shelter or fuel and with its food supply system in almost total chaos. Russell, London Times war correspondent at the front, writes home. Camp before Sebastopol, January the 2nd. We have had a rather rough and dreary Christmas of it, and we have not yet had a very happy new year on these heights before Sebastopol. Where are our presents, our Christmas boxes, the offerings of our kind countrymen and countrywomen and the donations from our ducal parks? Where are the fat bucks, the potted meats which cover the decks and fill the holds of adventurous yachts and the various worsted devices which had employed the fingers and emptied the crochet boxes? They will arrive too late to the army in its utmost need. We heard a great deal of the good things which many benevolent and patriotic persons are sending out to us poor devils who have the prospect of wintering out here. And I am sure that the universal sympathy and good wishes expressed on our behalf are duly appreciated. There is one public character who has it in his power to do us a really good turn, and that is by publishing in the Times a receipt or two of how to concoct into a palatable shape the eternal ration of pork and biscuit which is issued to us and with which we are heartily tired. For my part, if the issue of pork goes on much longer, I am afraid I shall soon begin to grunt. The bristles have certainly come out very strong. Monsieur Soyer is the man I allude to as the public character, and I am sure he will give us the benefit of his professional advice. I am yours, a Crimean. Soyer did more. He volunteered to go to the Crimea himself to reorganise the army's food system. The government jumped at his offer and asked him, in addition, to design a new stove for army use. 
His design was adopted and remained in use up to the outbreak of World War II. In the East, he joined Florence Nightingale, with whom he was to work very closely. It was she who showed him around the barrack hospital on his arrival. He was dumbfounded. Such a noise I never heard before. The market at Old Billingsgate during the first morning sale was nothing compared to this military row. Each man had two tin cans for the soup. They kept running about and knocking into each other in the most admirable disorder. Such confusion, thought I, is enough to kill a dozen patients daily. The hospital problem behind him, Soye then had the task of proving to conservative military men the merits of his new stoves, which had just arrived from England. He threw a party on August the 27th, 1855, for which he ordered extra wine at his own expense. Russell of the Times wrote home, Five o'clock is a hungry hour in the Crimea, and I can answer for it that few of the guests contented themselves with merely tasting. General Simpson smiled approvingly at the skill of the French cook, and General Pellissier seemed highly to enjoy his countryman's potage. There were rice pudding and Cossack plum pudding, all rations, snug tents with champagne and the most crystalline of ice, not rations, and Soyer was voted Nem Con, the worthy chef of the army in the Crimea. The cordon bleu to the war is gone. In the ranks of death you'll find him. His snow-white apron is girded on and his magic stove behind him. Army beef, says the cordon bleu, though a stupid bungler slays thee. One skilful hand thy steaks shall stew, one artist's pan shall braise thee. Our cook went forth, and the foe in vain on his pots and pans did thunder. He thicked thin gravy, he sauced the plain, and he sliced coarse lumps asunder. And he cried, a cook can defy, you see, a commissariat's knavery. The soldier who saves a nation free should have a ration savoury. But the Crimean triumph was earned at too great a price. Soyer's health was never the same again. Undeterred, he continued to work at his usual hectic pace till in early August 1858 the final collapse took place. On Monday, August the 2nd, he was obviously seriously ill. On Tuesday he rallied and began to make plans for a dinner party for the following evening, even asking a friend to provide a special dessert. But later that Tuesday evening he passed into a coma from which he never recovered. He lay unconscious for three days and died in his own house in St John's Wood, London, on the evening of the 5th of August. Among the many tributes paid to him, those by his co-worker Florence Nightingale and his friend George Augustus Sala, stand out. He was an original. He didn't do anybody any harm. He did, on the contrary, a vast amount of good in his generation. And even those who laughed at him loved him for his simple, childlike ways and generous candour. Princes used to shake hands with Alexis, but he never bragged of his grand acquaintances or deceived himself for one moment with the notion that he was looked upon as aught else than a good-humoured dependent. He never curried favour, never toadied, was never impertinent, but knew his own place, exacted the meed of respect due to him, and when the grandees came to see him in his kitchen, let them know that not only Savetier, but Cuisinier was maitre chez soi. Peace be to his ashes, for he was the worthiest of souls. His death is a great disaster. 
Others have studied cooking for the purposes of gourmandizing, some for show, but none but he for the purpose of cooking large quantities of food in the most nutritious manner for great numbers of men. He has no successor. <laughs>